I'm uh, exercising the prerogative of a preacher to change the text. <laughs> I try not to do that often, uh, but I am going to have you turning to the middle of your Bible today, just about the middle, a little book of Ecclesiastes, which comes after Psalms and Proverbs, so if you find Psalms, just keep going toward uh, the back of your Bible and look for Ecclesiastes. Why does your school homework seem so hard at times? Why is your job so boring and dull? Why is it your calling as mother or father as happy and fulfilling as you thought it would be? How is it that your earnings sometimes don't seem to match the needs of your household. For the past few Sundays, we've been considering what it means to be those who have been called to the, be the Church of Christ, the assembly of God's people, the congregation of God. And we've seen, I, I hope, in the last Sunday, that a lot of the focus of your life as a Christian should be on the six days that you are working. Uh, certainly enjoying the seventh day of worship and rest, but it's really in the six days of working that the rubber hits the road, right? And oftentimes, uh, that just doesn't go the way we would like it to go, right? Maybe this last week has not been for you, a week that came together well in terms of your daily calling, your daily work. Then you would sympathize with the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes. Hear this uh, piece of Hebrew poetry and, and see if it doesn't identify the human condition that you experience from time to time. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
What do you gain by all your work that you work from day to day? Doesn't it seem that things are just sort of going around and around in a circle? The sun also rises. It's a title of an Ernest Hemingway book which expressed the futility of human life that we all experience from time to time. Now, what happened? <laughs> we, we looked uh, previous Sunday at the fact that, that God had created everything very good and, and that he had given the human race a divine calling to be, to be rulers of this earth, to, to offer it, in a sense, back to him in praise and worship through the work of their hands, the work of their minds, to enjoy that calling of working and, and bringing culture onto the earth. What happened? Well, you know what happened, right? Genesis 3 happened. So let's go back to Genesis 3. We're going to look at a few different passages. We won't promise we won't go really into depth with them and keep you here all day, but we, we need to go to Genesis 3 to know what happened to work. Why, why your labor is not as satisfying and fulfilling as it would seem to have been possible in creation. Genesis 3, of course, is the account of human sin. Adam sins, plunges the human race into sin, walks into that sin, eyes wide open, rejects his calling. I mean, there's so much we could say about the opening of this, of this chapter, about the nature of sin. And then God deals with that sin. Picking up at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord, that is Yahweh God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves among the, from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. I really don't think that uh, God is just out for a stroll in the cool of the evening. This, this almost presents it like, well, God shows up for his usual walk in the evening with Adam and Eve and can't find him. That is not what is happening here. Uh, the word there in verse 8 is never, ever translated cool in any other place. Uh, it's actually the word for spirit or wind or breath, and the context helps you figure out what, which one it is. Now, they've, many translators have taken this to mean wind, and literally wind of the day, so they thought, well, when does the wind blow? In Palestine, it blows in the evening, in a hot day, you got a cool breeze coming off the water. Why? <laughs> why, would they even, why would we even be told the time of day? What does the time of day have to do with this? Nothing. This is not a seashore scene. Garden of Eden has four rivers flowing out of it. It's a mountaintop. 
It's not down in Palestine. So this isn't just happenstance. They hear the sound, the noise, the voice. That word can be translated to voice or noise. They hear the voice of Yahweh God moving through the garden. That word walking is the word used for movement in Hebrew as well. They hear God coming on the heels of their sin, and he is coming in the spirit of the day. He is coming in the spirit of the day of judgment. This is not just a casual scene. The very fabric of creation is going to change. Everything is going to change. Well, we'll skip over all the excuses that they, they make here. Basically, everything's been turned topsy-turvy, right? The creature, the serpent creature, used by Satan, is dictating to human beings. You realize how that's exactly the reverse of what God created it to be, created human, the human race to govern all the creatures. Now we have a snake telling them what to do. Okay. Because in their foolishness, they've listened to Satan. We have the man failing to step up and take responsibility. He is the one responsible here, by the way. It's his sin that plunges the human race into sin. The fall is not Eve's fault. It's the man's fault. He abdicates his responsibility. He fails to protect the garden. He was told to serve and guard the garden. He fails to do that. He fails to serve and guard his wife. So everything is turned upside down. So in God's response to this, beginning at verse 14, he turns everything right side up. Okay, so look at verse 14. Yahweh God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and, on, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Serpents back down where he belongs. The creature is put in submission. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But notice most of what God says is addressed to Adam. Beginning in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God's reordered things. He's established the right order once again. But 
It's very different, isn't it? It's a different world. As for the first time, we see the word curse. Now God doesn't bring something new onto the scene here. Because he'd already warned Adam, hadn't he? In the day that you disobey me, you'll die. Now, that's already happened by the time we get to verse 14. That's already happened. They're already dead. They're spiritually dead. We know that because of their response. Because suddenly they feel shame. And shame comes from guilt. So they're already spiritually dead. I don't know if they could sense it in their bodies, but their bodies have already begun to die. Just like our bodies are already dying. But God adds to that in verse 14 and following. There's a curse on creatures. See that in verse 14? The creatures are cursed. They didn't sin. The creatures didn't sin. Certainly, if you skip down to verse 17, the ground didn't sin. But with those two expressions, we're told all of creation is now under a curse. All of creation has lost the blessing of God. Just not the same. Of course, that's not all. We have the entrance of grief. Look first at verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain, my translation has. I really think grief is a little bit better word there. Because pain, we tend to think, well, physical. But I think there's more more to this than that. This is the word that is often used as sorrow or grief, and I think the King James, if I recall correctly, uses sorrow here. Your sorrow shall be multiplied, and sorrow you shall bring forth children. That, that aspect of life, which should have been the most meaningful, the most joyful, the most wonderful for her, becomes a source of sorrow. And I think we can extrapolate from this fairly to parenting in general. Parenting is now not, not just happiness. There is a grief to it. Some of you have known that grief or experienced that grief now. So grief has come into the world Conflict has come in. Your desire should be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is the same phrasing that's used later when, when God says to Cain, sin desires you, it wants to master you, but you must rule over it. Conflict. Perpetuation of that which got them into it, by the way. 
her desire is for her husband. She, she feels like she should need take charge. Well, because he abdicated it, right? I mean, that's what happened in the fall. He abdicated his responsibility. He, he just sat back passively, did nothing. Did not protect her, did not guide her, did not lead her. And so she feels like she has to take the initiative now. And, of course, that brings conflict then because that's not the order that God made for the family. And so when the husband is passive, the wife steps in, and that will never work. There's always conflict as a result. So we have grief, we have conflict. Moving on down to, the, to verse 19, we have sweat. Work becomes hard, the ground's yielding thorns and thistles, not just good fruits and food to eat. And that's going to be perpetual until death. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here is the source of the futility, the vanity, the emptiness that you sometimes sense in your work. Here's the source of the frustration that you experience in your relationships, even within families. Here's the suffering that, that you experience, even as you're seeking to live out your calling to God's glory. So what does this mean? How, how, or let me rephrase that. How do we live as Christians, as followers of Christ? How do we put together our calling before God to live every day as, to his glory with this context that we live in, in this world that is, that is so marred, so misshapen, by sin. How do we understand what's happening here? Why has God done this? Why has he added to our misery, to human misery here? We are already dead and dying. Why is he cursing the ground? Cursing the work of our hands, in a sense. Well, you know, in a sense, it's really out of mercy. Can you imagine the depravity of a sinful man who always gets what he wants. Can you imagine the evil that a wicked man could come up with if all his endeavors were granted success? Oh, there's, a, there's a hidden mercy here and that God's cursing of human effort restrains in a sense, they're evil. So there's that, that element of God's grace at work here in, in sort of a strange way. And I think we see that reflected in Romans chapter 8. And I want to go there next. Romans chapter 8. Paul is giving us a wonderful 
wonderful survey of theology in the opening chapters of Romans. And he comes to a passage that's very relevant to what we've been looking at in connection with our work in chapter 8. Now, he's speaking to believers here. Okay, so if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've been granted spiritual life in Christ, he's speaking this to you. Even though you're living in this world where there is frustration, where there is there are hard things that go on. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. We want to put this together with our understanding of the world as under a curse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Why is creation subjected, as Paul say here? Why is creation subjected to decay, to bondage, as it were? Well, he says that, that it has been subjected because it must wait for the full revealing of God's work of redemption among his people. This is a temporary subjection that must remain in force until sin is fully eradicated. Now you see how this changes the believer's thinking about work. Okay? Because it lifts our gaze beyond this present existence to one to come. You really need to grab a hold of that if you're going to have a truly Christian view of work. See, see the world looks at, looks at man's relationship with work only in, in terms of this life. And so they either love it or they hate it. Okay? They either see work as the means to fulfillment and wealth and all good things in life, and so they become workaholics at the extreme. Or they see it as an evil to be avoided at all costs. 
But the believer doesn't fall into either one of those ditches, as it were, on the sides of the road, because he's looking beyond this present, present life to what Paul's talking about here, the revealing of the sons of God. What, what does he mean by that? Now, he's already told us earlier in the chapter that we're adopted by God. Okay, you're already a child of God. If the, if the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and brought you into a relationship of faith with God, you're already a child of God, but there is a sense... Paul is saying here, there is a sense in, in which your adoption is going to be completed. See that in, in verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Okay, you're already a child of God, but there is, there is going to be a completeness to that adoption. And that comes, notice the end of verse 23 there, the redemption of our bodies. This is a resurrection hope. Okay? So you want to be engaged in, in the work of your hands and minds with a resurrection hope in your heart. That's going to change your view of your daily work. That revelation is so glorious, Paul said earlier. That your, your experience of the resurrection is going to bring you in such an into such an incredibly glorious state that all the suffering of this life will seem like nothing. Now, I know it's hard to get your heads around that. Maybe in some very small way you can think of working for something that you really enjoyed getting later on, or if you're an athlete, you know, expending yourself and training for the sake of winning the prize. You know, maybe you can think of some little analogy like that and then multiply infinitely. <laughs> Your deepest sorrow in this life as a believer, your, various, your heaviest heartache is going to seem like nothing when you are glorified. Do you see how that empowers you, your work? And nothing can overcome you. I don't care how hard those math problems are, you're going to persevere through them, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter how, how frustrating that construction project is, how discouraging your service to someone else may seem, you know there's a resurrection hope in front of you. And that empowers you to persevere and even, even to take joy in the midst of suffering because you're enduring for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's Peter and John, right? After they've been beaten, remember? 
They walk away, having had their backs laid open with whips, rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Your particular calling, we're going to talk about particular callings later on. There's a general calling we could say that you all have as believers to glorify God, to serve him in everything that you do. There are particular callings as well, and we're going to talk about those. Everybody has a little different calling. But, but the motivation, the strength, the power, the hope in the midst of your pursuing your calling, both the general calling and the particular calling that you've got, is in this resurrection hope. You are a forward-looking people. Don't let the world get your eyes off that. The world is going to continually be trying to pull your gaze down to get you looking down at the ground. Keep your eyes on the hope that's set before you. Your redemption is so important, Paul is saying here, that God has subjected all creation to the curse. For your sake. All right, the creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's for your sake. Let's close with going on toward the back of the Bible to Second Peter. Just look briefly at this encouragement from Second from Peter in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, as we close. Peter's approaching the end of his epistle, so he's summing up things, summing up his encouragement to these people, to us. So we're going to jump into his conversation in verse 11 of chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, chapter 11. And he's just spoken about the Lord's return, the end of this world as we know it, okay? the coming of the Lord in judgment when he will establish a new kingdom, new heavens and new earth. And look at what he says in, beginning in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since all of creation that you know, all the world that you know, is just a temporary thing and going to come to an end, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Your ultimate reward does not come in this life. Your ultimate happiness does not come in this life if you're a believer. Remember that. Because often your plans are going to fall short. 
What you're working on is not going to turn out the way you'd hoped. But you are waiting for this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. You are waiting for that perfect creation that is no longer marred by the curse. So in light of that, Peter's saying, in light of the fact that this is what God has for you, okay, that's his purpose for you, that eternal life in this new heavens and a new earth, in light of that, well, how, how should you live? I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question, right, there in verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be? Well, we ought to be people that are pursuing holiness, godliness. Our desires are where our hope is. So the way we handle our money then reflects the fact that we see our ultimate investment in heaven, right? In that new heavens and new earth. The way I use my time is, is shaped by my understanding that this time is very limited, but I have eternity in the presence of God. I'm keeping my gaze fixed, as Peter tells me to, here on the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, and so I want that righteousness. Is that the desire of your heart? Righteousness, godliness, holiness, that's to be your desire. Don't be distracted by the paltry things that this world offers. In a sense, verse 12, as you wait for that new heavens and new earth, in hope, pursuing holiness, pursuing godliness, seeking to live out your calling, whatever it is, in a way that honors God, whether it's washing dishes or working in the garden or whatever your employment may be, as you're doing that, notice verse 12, in a way, Peter said, you are hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, obviously, God, God has our, he already knows the end from the beginning, so he knows when he's going to come. But, but Peter is saying, as you, in a sense, are God's instruments in this world, as you are fulfilling your calling in his strength, in his power, Day by day, you're hastening, you're moving history toward that end, his glory. And so, skip down to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you're awaiting for these, since your ultimate destination is not on this world, 
since your ultimate fulfillment is not in the things of this world, since your ultimate happiness is not here, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. God is being so patient with us, isn't he? Skipping down to verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There is a joy to be found in your calling here. There is a happiness to be found on this earth. And in fact, if your ultimate happiness is with God in heaven, you'll be much more likely to find happiness here. You know what happens? We, we overload stuff in this world. We, we, we latch onto a person and we think they're going to they're gonna make our lives wonderful. That's a weight nobody can bear. We will crush them with that, and we will wind up disappointed. We, we find a career, and we think, well, this is it. This is going to give me the money I want. This is going to give me the status I want. This is going to, this is going to be everything. And it can't deliver. Your longings... Your desires that God placed in you are far too big for anything in this life. So you need to keep those desires and those longings fixed on God who alone can satisfy them. And then along the way, when he brings his blessings, you'll be able to enjoy them for what they are. You'll be able to enjoy relationships with other people as, uh, people as wonderful gifts that he is giving. You'll be able to enjoy the, the accomplishing things with your hands as, as a wonderful uh, means of blessing because you're not counting on that to fulfill you. You're seeking that growth in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he is the one who brings you ultimate satisfaction. This then is the basis for your day-to-day -day living, your daily living. Okay, remember our faith is an everyday faith, not just an hour on Sunday. And offer to God all the hours now and this week to come Ask him, okay, how can I live this? How can, I, how can I fulfill this calling, whatever it may be that I've got, in anticipation of your call to be with you in heaven forever? Let's pray. Lord, we uh, certainly confess that much of the time we're very aware 
of the inadequacies of this life, of the frustrations, discouragements, sickness, grief. Help us, Lord, to, to not be crushed by these. Help us to encourage one another to, to keep our eyes on our eternal hope, that resurrection hope that is ours. Enable us to, to see this life now as, as a temporary occupation that, that we can offer to you. Help us to know the joy of redeeming every moment by seeing it as an opportunity to worship and serve you through the work of our hands and minds, through our relationships, through a gathering together for worship on the Lord's Day. Lord, we desire to, to be your people. Grant us your, your Holy Spirit in a fresh way to do that, to know the joy of being yours, even, even a joy in the midst of difficulty and challenge. And we will give you all the praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.